All right, so that was my bad. That's supposed to be John 1, verse 3. I think I wrote it wrong in the bulletin, too, and that's why it was written wrong up there. Because uh, I wrote that up there last night about 10.30. I was very tired. I had a long trip. I was in Memphis all day. So excuses, 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 and now I'm okay. So David very eloquently read John 3.3, 3, and we must be born again. Good to know, but not relevant. It's supposed to be John 1.3, uh, which is all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So there's your reference, John 1.3. I'm going to actually come back to that at the end of the, the sermon, but I just wanted to answer the discrepancy because... Was wrong, and that was my bad. So, my bad, y'all. All right. Good morning, everybody. We're thankful to have you here. And obviously, as uh, Tommy mentioned, we have many who are um, ill, who are home, whether with COVID or other sicknesses. We hope that they all will get better and recover and come back to be with us. I'm sure, um, as our family did just yesterday, I'm sure there are many who are traveling and away and um, off other places. I hope that they'll be able to get back to us safe and sound as well. This, of course, is the holiday time of the year. This is the Christmas time. It is the time when people are celebrating and talking about and thinking about and um, you know, putting into mind more so than they perhaps do the other um, 11 months of the year, the birth of Jesus. Uh, even though you can, you can match it up to the calendar, you can make it work, and you can find uh, the evidence from Chronicles and Luke chapter 1 to sync it up to Jesus being born either in March or September, guaranteed he wasn't born in December, but it's a whole nother story. It's a whole nother sermon. I shouldn't have even started. There I go. I'm just going off on a ramp. But it's perfectly acceptable and fine if you want to say, I want to take a moment or I want to take a month's worth of moments and I want to think about and reflect on the birth of my king. Because we reflect weekly by worship, by commandment on the death of our king, but he would not have died if he had not been born. So it's perfectly appropriate to think about and to celebrate and to thank God for the birth of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So people are doing that all month long, and I recognize that, and I'm certainly, I'm right there with you. I am talking about it and thinking about it and so forth as well. But I've got a sermon this morning that has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus or has nothing to do with the Christmas season or with anything else that we typically associate with this time of the year. I have a sermon that I've been holding on to for about two years now. Um, and I hate when preachers give you the hit background of the sermon because I know nobody cares. I don't even care. And yet here we are. So let's just, let's just get through this part and then I'll get to the sermon. But it was about two years ago we had our theme that we had in 2019 in spirit and in truth. And it was then that we were talking about, Alex and I, what themes for the following year and the year following and the year following. So we knew the next year would be 2020, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And Alex had the idea, let's do in 2021, love your neighbor. And immediately we start coming up with sermon ideas, even before we even got to 2020, because we were thinking about what can we do with Love Your Neighbor. And one of the things we wanted to do with this year's theme is answer questions that our neighbors may have. As, and that's something we tried to do all year long, just kind of sprinkled throughout the year's worth of sermons, is every now and then just stop and consider some sermons that answer some of the fundamental questions, some of the perhaps more deeper ingrained kind of questions, and just whatever kind of subjects that may be on the minds of the people around us who we hope to convert to Jesus Christ. And there is a question that needs answering that comes up frequently whenever you talk about the creation account, whenever you talk about the flood account, whenever you just watch a popular movie series, these questions will start to come up to either per, by a person who is uh, completely opposed to the Bible, try to discredit the Bible, or someone who is a believer of the Bible, but trying to reconcile what the Bible says with what is shown um, in the world. 
And so that question is simply this. It is, where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And it's a question that needs to be answered. We have to understand this because, and it's not, and I'll say this at the end of the sermon, it is not the big fundamental question that we have to know. It is not on the test before Judgment Day that you have to know the answer to and have to have the particulars given and so forth. But it is a question that Christians ought to be able to have at least a passing ability to answer because it will come up more often than not. I'll give you an example right now. A couple of years ago, I don't remember how far back it was, back when they were, um, well, I guess is when they were renovating the new fellowship hall. Around that same time, we, they installed windows into our offices. We used to be in caves and dens like savages, and then they gave us windows so we could see the world around us. And in that time when they were installing the windows, the workers were always moving in and out. The offices, the area was a mess. And there was this, if you've ever been in the office building, there's a long hallway between my office and Alex's office, and there's this big Bible timeline that we set up. I had a, it was a Christmas gift from a while back from my friend, Brent Hawley. Gave me this big giant Bible timeline that walks you from the creation account of Genesis 1 all the way to, I don't remember, somewhere like the Renaissance era. So modern recorded history. So from beginning to basically the present day, it walks you through the Bible timeline. It's fascinating to look at. You can just get lost staring at that thing. And I overheard one of the workers saying in passing, all right, well, that's good, but where do dinosaurs fit into all that? That is how frequently and easily that kind of question can come into play. So I think it's worth a simple sermon's worth of explanation. We are not going to go extremely deep. I'm not going to give you pages of notes that I have collected over the years about fossil records and, and uh, carbon dating methods and the flaws found there and all kinds of other things that you could get into. This is going to be simple and Bible-based because that's what you want to do with the sermon. But hopefully by the end of it, if we didn't know, we'll know. And if we knew, we'll have refreshed our knowledge of how to answer this simple question of where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Let me say this just by way of introduction. Everything before that was just pre-introduction. Here is your simple introduction. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. I've said that before in classes and sermons, but it needs to be reiterated. Your Bible is not an encyclopedia. You cannot open your Bible, unfortunately so. You cannot open your Bible, go to the letter D, scroll down to dinosaur, and then read everything that God has to say, either implicitly or explicitly, about dinosaurs. You can't go to H for Holy Spirit or A for angels or anything else like that. That is not how the Bible is written. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. The Bible is not even a book. The Bible is a collection of 66 very distinct individual books united by the common theme of the fact they were all inspired by God and they all in one way or another point us to either the coming, the come, or the coming again, Christ. That is what your Bible is. It is 66 collections of books, some of which contain a lot of history, but they're not history books. Some of which contain a lot of biology, but they're not biology books. Or contain a lot of math, but they're not math books. Or contain a lot of science, but they're not science books. Or contain a lot of doctrine, but they're not doctrine books. Contain a lot of loving statements, but they're not all love letters. All right? But your Bible is this varied, multifaceted collection of books, all inspired by God, to give you the right information that you need to go to heaven. The Bible is not going to tell you the things that may be itching your brain in a random thought. How did the people use the bathroom back then? What does it mean when the Bible says they, they, uh, he lifted his skirt or he lifted his robe? That means going to the bathroom, number two. What does it mean when uh, they, they had a special kind of armor that was described in certain ways like Goliath's armor? How did they make that armor? How did they make his, his giant spear that he carried? Things like those kinds of questions that would nag me 
The Bible doesn't just say, all right, now here's five paragraphs about that, because it's not an encyclopedia. If you're driving down the dirt road and your chariot wheel breaks, do they have a spare wheel in the back? I have legitimately wondered about this, or were you just stuck? Were you just, you know, out there? You should have had a spare on you, but you didn't, didn't carry a spare. Do they have like a spare, like a Jeep, you know, in the back? Those kind of questions. Your Bible's not going to answer because it doesn't matter. What's the deal with dinosaurs? Your Bible doesn't just explicitly answer that question. The Bible's not going to tell you everything about everything. But if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, what the Bible does is it tells you everything that you need to know about what you need to know. The Bible gives you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. The Bible does not tell you all things. It tells you all things that pertain to your spiritual life and the godliness that you're supposed to exhibit in that life before God and your neighbors and your church community. That's what the Bible provides. And so if you go into the Bible wanting it to do something it can't, I can understand why you'd be frustrated. And there are a lot of people who are frustrated because they open the Bible and they want a simple, you know, input-output answer. I want to know everything there is to know about dinosaurs, and it doesn't work that way. Or some, some other subject you may have in mind. And they get frustrated and they start to doubt. Or if they go into it with the doubting idea already, they read it, they can't find it, and they confirm to themselves well then the bible must not have all the answers well as a matter of fact the bible doesn't have all the answers because it doesn't ask it doesn't ask all the questions that matter it answers everything that matters but you're asking the wrong question don't get mad at your toaster if it can't pour your orange juice get mad at your toaster if it can't toast don't get mad at the bible if it doesn't tell you everything you need to know about dinosaurs it tells you everything you need to know about jesus that's what matters nevertheless there are some things that we can learn about this subject that is so commonly talked about. There are some things the Bible tells us about dinosaurs. Let's start with the, the word. You always have to define your terms. Dinosaur, as with most words from our English language, is just stolen from other languages. In this case, the Greek language. There are two words put together to make what we call dinosaur. The first one is dinos, which means terrible. And that's the classical meaning of the word terrible. Not like really, really bad terrible, but like awe-inspiring terrible. God is a terrible God. That is an okay statement to make, assuming you mean by terrible, he makes your jaw drop. He makes you stand in awe. In fact, we sing that song. We, I stand amazed, I stand in awe. That's the meaning of the classical word terrible. I am awestruck at the magnitude and the massiveness and the size, scale, and scope. Well, that's the word here, dinos terrible the other word is sara which is just the greek word for lizard whether it's a little itty bitty lizard or there's a bigger lizard or whether it's a lizard that is so big you stand in awe of its magnitude and thus those two words together become and i'm going to say it just like a southerner because i hear sara and so i have to say it dinosaur that's how it sounds like it sounds like mr dna in jurassic park dinosaur right that's the word that's how we get the word dinosaur very very big awe-inspiring lizard there are some things we can know. I have three simple points for you, and then I'm going to be done. Point number one, dinosaurs, we know from the Bible, dinosaurs were made. Open your Bibles to what would probably be like page two or page one even of your text. Genesis chapter one, and read with me just one little verse right in the middle of the creation account. Day five, if you're keeping up with it that way. Look at Genesis 1.25. And God made... Underline that three-word phrase if you want. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God 
made the dinosaur. Now, can you find the word dinosaur in this verse? No, you can't find the word dinosaur in this verse. It's not an encyclopedia. It doesn't work that way. You also can't find the word penguin, but I've seen some of those with my own two eyes. You can't find the word lizard, and even the little bitty lizards. You can't find monkey. You can't find your name. And yet, those things were made, and they are not, if not directly referenced, they are implicitly referenced from those first three words. And God made. Where did the monkey come from? Where did the turtle come from? Where did the lizard come from, whether he's a terrible or a small and God made these things did not just slither out of some sludge and go from one kind of species to a completely different kind of species and then over time become a completely different kind of species until they became a species we would call a very big lizard that started out as just some microbe and some sludge and some water somewhere no and God made God did not just sit back and watch nor did God just facilitate the evolution of something to something else, but and God made. These things did not just come out of nowhere for no purpose. And God made. God crafted. God created. God molded into existence. In fact, that's the way John describes the creation in John chapter 1. God made. UFOs did not beam them down from outer space, which is an actual theory you can find online. And God made they didn't he didn't make them for nothing and god designed and god purposed and god wanted to make i remember i think it was in sixth grade so like 1996 all right to date myself in sixth grade i was in art class and i was and i have it in my office if you want to see it i had this little bitty canvas i was tasked with painting a picture on and everybody had to have the same assignment we all had to paint the same picture it was a green field and a little fence post, all right? And I, having grown up on a farm, I don't know if you know that, I actually grew up on a farm, and I was tasked many times over the years to dig and build fences for my father. And sometimes I would build a whole row of these fence posts and then run the barbed wire around them and crank them back and tighten them up, only for him to arbitrarily say, yeah, but I wanted the fence here. So I had to redig the entire thing six inches to the left and redesign the entire fence. So I'm very familiar with what a fence post looked like. So I painted this fence post. I painted the green grass and the blue sky. And then just on a lark, I decided, probably from PTSD, to put a little barbed wire on that fence. So I just strung a little strand of broken barbed wire. And then in the sky, as most kids do, I did a little V, you know, to symbolize a bird. That wasn't in the assignment. I just wanted to do that. I wanted to put that bird in the corner. I wanted to add that there. It has no actual purpose. It added nothing to my grade. I just wanted to put it there. God did not just arbitrarily decide to put animals on the earth. God did not just arbitrarily decide to put fish in the sea or birds in the sky or lizards on the ground, whether little or terrible. God wanted them there. That doesn't mean there's some grand purpose behind them. It means God is a painter. And painters sometimes like to add little flourishes. In fact, we're going to see that as we go to the next point and the context behind it. First point is this, though. Dinosaurs were made. Second, dinosaurs were mentioned. God, being a painter, will add flourishes to his painting, like a little V to make a bird or a lizard in grand scale, to identify and to magnify and to show off, for lack of a better phrase, perhaps, his own painting prowess. God, the creator painter, wanted to show off, again, for lack of a better phrase, no disrespect intended, show off his creative prowess when he made something. And that's the context here at the end of Job. 
We're not going to rehash all the book of Job. Alex taught a class on it not too long ago. You can reference that. But toward the end of the book, God and Job have a conversation, a very one-sided conversation, where God basically puts the servant in its place for a lot of misunderstandings and false presumptions that he had specifically about God. And in the midst of that, God is trying to describe to him about himself to Job about how humongous he is and how unchallenged and unmatched he really is. And so to do that, he wants to show him, here is something that I created as effortlessly as I could create a bug or a beetle, I made this thing in the verses, Job 40, verses 15 through 18, which I like to look down and read. So here's what it says. Behold the behemoth which I made, the King James says, with thee, I made alongside you, I made as well as you. He eats the grass like an ox, lo now his strength is in his loins, and the force is in the navel of his belly. I'll translate in a minute. He moves his tail like a cedar, and the sinews of his stones are wrapped together, his thighs. His bones are as strong as pieces of brass, and his bones are like bars of iron. So again, the context is, Job, you don't know who you're messing with. You don't know who you're talking to. I'm not just the maker of the little scurrying bug. Look at this humongous thing that I've created. Look at, I know the word dinosaur is not there, but look at this behemoth. Look at this humongous, imposing creation thing that I have made, Job. To indicate to you, to show you my creative prowess. And look at the way this creature is described. And see if it doesn't start to form a picture in your mind of something that you've perhaps seen in illustrations before. It is described as being an herbivore. It's described as having a strong, big, thick, stout midsection. It's described as having a tail like a cedar, a big, large tail. Having small thighs and very strong bones described in the text as being like iron. Now, if you want to find a critic of the Bible, you can find them. And if you want to point them to this text, it says, look, here's a reference to creatures that, to spoil, I'm sure you know, would represent and resemble a dinosaur. A critic who would have no way to reconcile how Job, who for nothing else is a very old, old, old writer, writing in a very pre-scientific discovery age, writing about behemoth creature that's the word that job uses god uses in job's writing a behemoth creature to describe and to explain where this came from you have to first if you're a skeptic or a critic of the bible you have to start with well it wasn't a dinosaur it must have been something else and so what you'll get is job was describing a hippopotamus which sure enough has strong bones has small thighs has a big midsection and is an herbivore although i'm pretty sure they can eat people too but let's just i'll give them that we'll just toss them that bone what they don't have however is a very large tail because, I mean, look at this rinky-dinky thing and tell me that's a cedar. No cedar I've ever seen. No, absolutely not. So it's not a hippopotamus, but that will be, and I, I Googled it recently and many times over, your common translation of a, from a skeptic's point of view. Oh, it's, oh, it's just a hippopotamus. But there is an animal that matches the description. Now, I'm not saying that God is specifically intending to describe what we would call a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus, and I think it's like an apatosaurus or aptosaurus or something like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying here is a description that does match, and all those things plus the big giant tail that you could be described as big enough to be resembling a cedar. They, if, if not an actual, what we would call big lizard dinosaur is mentioned, then if nothing else, what is mentioned in the verse was a behemoth, something so large that it caused small in scale-sized men to stare at in awe and tremble, and their response is to marvel at the creation of God. So it's really a matter of splitting hairs. If it wasn't actually a big lizard he's describing, it doesn't matter because it effectively is an animal as big as. 
So what are we even really arguing here? If he could have made that and was referenced in Job in ancient time, then why not consider a possibility to be a dinosaur? And so with that in mind, with that presumption in mind, dinosaurs were made. Dinosaurs were mentioned. And so the question then comes, well, what happened to them? Because I see lizards running around all over the place, but terrible lizards, awe-inspiring lizards, not running around all over the place. Well, it's because dinosaurs were also murked. Dinosaurs were done away with. Dinosaurs were taken out of the equation by God. To understand that, we go back to the flood in Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 6 and read with me verses 17 through 19. Where God says to Noah, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die, but with thee will I establish my covenant. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of all that, two of every sort, you shall bring into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So here's our reference that we're very familiar with. If I can put this back in my jacket. Here's our reference we're very familiar with. God is describing how Noah is going to take care of post-flood humanity, post-flood creation. He is to gather in any person who wants to save their life. And he only manages to convince his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight souls in total. But he is also required to take care of all land and above uh, faring animals. But how is Noah going to fit a terrible-sized lizard on the ark? How is he going to fit an animal that humongous? Well, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to fit a terrible lizard. A lizard will suffice. Because God did not ask him to put every kind of spider on the boat. He did not ask him to put every kind of monkey on the boat. He didn't ask him to put every kind of lizard on the boat. He just said, of every sort. Here's a sort of lizard. Good enough. Get on the boat. And we'll leave the big ones, you know, unfortunately, to fend for themselves. Thus, they were murked. They were done away with. They were ended. And lizards yet continued. I mean, if you're Noah, what would you do? You've got a long laundry list. I mean, literally a list of things to collect. And you have to collect lizard. Are you going to choose the, the terrible or the garden variety? The garden variety, right? Because it's probably right there. I rest my case, ladies and gentlemen. Here is a, it's a very old picture. and That's why it's so uh, pixelated. And it also somehow cuts off Australia, uh, Antarctica. But um, I found this years ago doing research for something else. What you have here behind me are everywhere there's a red dot is a place where we have dug up either dinosaur bones in particular or just fossils uh, in general. And there are some gaps in it where there very well might be more to discover, like the whole rainforest has pretty much been untouched. Siberia is left open, and no one's daring to go into the middle of Australia unless you become a dinosaur. So there's some places there where we might end up discovering more. But what you see here are just, it's just the, the peppering of red, which is a representation of evidence of things that lived before us. These things were real, and there is no, you'll find some lunatic so-called evangel who doesn't know what they're talking about, who's trying to reconcile the Bible with science, who will say, God buried bones in the dirt to test our faith. Please do not say that, and please do not give those people a microphone. That is not what God did. God created is what God did. God made, God mentioned, and then God murked. God did away with them, and the evidence left behind is there for us. To see and to know. And the point of seeing them is not to doubt and to question, but to marvel. When you see the leg bone of a brontosaurus, marvel at the size of this thing. Because, I mean, my leg bone, not that impressive. But it hints at a six-foot-tall person. Now, marvel at the leg bone of a dinosaur as big as that. It stretches even beyond me. And then marvel at the creative prowess 
of the painter creator god the question to consider as we close where do dinosaurs fit in the bible they fit right there in john 1 3 all things were made by him and without him was nothing made that was made where did they come from well i don't know where the duck come from same creator and it was just as impressive to his creative mind as the other and it was just as effortlessly made as the other two now i don't have a segue i don't have i worked on one last night i couldn't workshop one together i don't have a segue from dinosaurs to the gospel so i'll just say this i guess here's the best i can give you dinosaurs don't matter the 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 history of dinosaurs where they came from how they got uh, went away and so forth all that is secondary if not tertiary if not just not even an airy what is primary to you is your relationship with god the creator that made the awe-inspiring and the small and little made you as well you were made and you matter you're important and unlike an animal that was made you have a purpose and more than just god wanted to show off his ability to create he made you in his image he wants you to have a relationship with him so what is your relationship with god your maker and creator this morning are you a faithful child of his if you are not now is your opportunity to come back to him if you're not a christian here is your opportunity to believe the gospel the good news that jesus your creator died was buried and rose and you can obey that good news by yourself putting your sins to death in repentance burying them in the watery grave and then rising to walk in newness of life romans chapter 6 and if you are a christian if you have done that but you've let doubts especially about things that don't matter and you've let worries and fears and problems of the world pull you away from god and jesus christ now is your opportunity to come back to his loving arms, to come back to the shelter of the gospel, to receive the good news of your restoration. And if we can help you in any way, let us know how right now as we stand and sing.